Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. On this show, we speak to the experts and break down the technology and the data that is allowing us to measure, optimize, and understand our health in ways that have never been possible before. This show is for the health hackers, the data nerds, the athletes, the execs, the high performers, and anyone looking to take their health and their game to the next level. Be sure to check out our website and our health analytics app at headsuphealth.com and feel free to shoot us an email, support at headsuphealth.com with any comments, questions, or feedback on this show or our app. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and let's get into our next episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to Data Driven Health Radio. I have Dr. Kevin Sprouse across from me, someone who I've been wanting to interview for a very long time. He is a medical professional working in in the sports medicine field. And and one of the reasons I really want to talk to Dr. Sprouse is because he is intimately familiar with how to use data in, in the work that he does. So, Dr. Kevin, thank you for making time on a busy day and give us an introduction on yourself and and a little bit about the work you do, and then we're going to get into all kinds of nerdy details here. Yeah, no, sounds good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm a sports medicine doctor, uh, trained in both sports and emergency medicine, and have a degree in exercise physiology as well. And so in my medical practice with, my practice was initially just with athletes, I really had a desire to bring in the sports science component and the physiology aspect, which is honestly missing in a lot of medicine. It doesn't seem like it should be, but it's not something we learn a lot about in medical school. So I wanted to bring that to how I practice medicine. And now what I do is I work with a very small number of patients, some professional athletes, about half of my patients are athletes, half are you know, recreational athletes, more in the kind of executive field, I guess, Yep. and try to bring the same ideas that we use with the pros in terms of data analytics, monitoring, bring that to the non-pro athlete too to help them with their goals, whether that's performance, health, usually both. Man, talking to a kindred spirit here. That yeah. sounds incredible. <laughs> that's what we're trying to do with our software platform. And you and I have a project underway right now to yeah. create a, a portal that will help you, I guess, um, more holistically manage a lot of these measurements, provide a lot of the uh, interpretation on some of these measurements. So um We're definitely mission aligned there. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Sprouse. And and I'm excited about the stuff we're working on because so many right right now in in the in sports medicine and just in life, we can measure so many things, but we can't correlate much of it. And then then it's hard to know what's noise, what's actionable data. And so what we're working on is, you know, it allows that correlation, it allows us to overlay things and see what is what's actionable. And when we do take action what uh, what results do we see? And that's just so basic, but missing. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and you'd, you'd think at some point it's like, okay, there's only a finite amount of things you can measure and learn about your health, but it never ends. It's, it's yeah. always a process of unfolding and learning more about how to use a number. And, and we're going to get into what these mean, but you know, now my, one of the most important metrics on my dashboard is my um, HRV CV. And like six months ago, I'd never even heard of that before. And now it's like, wow, that's actually like super critical. And for me as an entrepreneur, everything I do is about my own resilience. And the lower I get that number, the more I know I'm managing my 
my resilience properly. And so now I have other people connected to my account in Heads Up, family members and such. And it's like, you know, even if I've never even consulted or met with you before, as long as you provide me certain numbers, I'll immediately know what's going on. And that's what analytics offers us, whether it's health or buying stocks. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, it's always unfolding and unraveling and getting deeper for me. And so just, I'm really excited about providing something like this just to individuals, but then also to individuals like yourself who know how to interpret and then use this in a high performance context. Yeah. And to your point, a lot of us are in high performance context, even if we don't give ourselves credit for it. Right. Totally. The number of people that I've spoken to, you know, in my medical career, you go in and you meet with a patient and you say, you know, uh, you talk through things and you're know, part of life. So what do you do for work? You know, is that high stress? Everybody says it's high stress, right? Mm-hmm. Now, whether their job would seem high stress to you or not, is kind of immaterial. It doesn't matter. Um, right. So they are dealing with certain challenges and performance issues, you know, whether that's sleep or some other health metric. And we can look to the people who are, are, are at the pinnacle of performance in athletics and learn what, what really allows them to perform at their best. And that can trickle down to the rest of us. You know, I'm, I may go out and do a 5k or a bike race or whatever, but it's, I'm not a high performing athlete, but throughout the rest of my 24 hours in the day, I try to perform well at whatever I'm doing and, Mm -hmm. and tools like yours helps, helps us distill those metrics and see which ones are useful, which ones, you know, maybe contextually aren't for a given person. They might totally. be for someone else. Yeah. And without that, it's, it's a lot of shooting in the dark, a lot of guess and check. Well, there's a lot of questions I want to ask, but let's go back a few steps here first. So it sounds like your, your training, your training is, is in emergency medicine, you said, and also in sports medicine. So those are two very different domains. Did you spend time in a classical clinical emergency setting and part of your career? Oh yeah. So my, my residency was in emergency medicine in New York city. Uh, that was a three-year residency. And then following that, I did my fellowship in sports medicine. When I got out of fellowship, I actually went to practice initially as a full-time ER doctor while working on the side with a professional cycling team as their, as, as one of their doctors. Mm-hmm. As the years went by, I did less and less of the emergency medicine and more and more sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, starting out primarily with endurance athletes because that's where I had an interest and experience. But now right. that has even you know, spilled over into, into other sports. So mm-hmm. I've spent about 10 years working clinically as an emergency physician. I now do it pretty sparingly, but I still, uh, I, I still do some shifts each month. And primarily spend time in my sports practice working with patients through that. Well, I guess there's a level of reassurance among some of your um, athletes who are pushing the limits that if they crash on a bike or there's some other catastrophe, it's like, okay, I got the right man for the job here, not only from the sports side, but also from, uh, from anything, any, any other events that could take place. You know, it, it actually comes into use quite often, unfortunately, yeah. especially when I'm at events. You know, this was my seventh year going to the Tour de France. Uh-huh. And, and uh, I spend about anywhere from 60 to 100 days a year at professional cycling races, uh, triathlons, all sorts of stuff with, with my patients. And 
the the emergency component we certainly think about the trauma you know the crash and and need an emergency doctor but there's also also the late night knocks on the door with stomach pain or asthma attacks or mm -hmm. you know whatever it is that just comes up and having that emergency background and also staying current in it allows me i think to be able to handle it better it certainly gives me a higher level of comfort when those things happen i, I don't feel like i'm so yep. far out of my element yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, have you always, as in terms of your career, migrating away from the emergency part more towards the sports? Was it, was that driven by some of your own personal interests around sport and exercise? Or you, it was. You know, I've I've always been into sports. I've always played kind of whatever seasonal sports were going on. I grew up playing baseball, tennis. Uh, when I was younger, a lot of you know basketball, soccer, kind of everything that was going on. Um, and then when I got to college, I started running and doing a little bit of triathlon and mountain bike and cycling. So it was more, not, not a lot of competition there. I was never really good enough to be competitive at stuff, but I enjoyed it. But what I really, what really informed my medical practice was seeing the sports science and the, the preventive aspect that comes with activity and exercise, mm -hmm. how that was missing, but so crucial in health care and health promotion. Yes. Um, and then when I got, as I got interested in that part and then more sports performance and then high performing athletes, it was just kind of a natural fit to, to drop into sports medicine as well. So in sports medicine, there's typically kind of the musculoskeletal component, the injuries and the, the, the treatment of fractures and meniscus tears and all that stuff. And that fascinates me. I love it. But I also like to bring in the nutrition and the, the performance promotion, you know, all the things that we can do around an athlete, both to get them healed and doing better. And then once they're kind of back at their baseline from an injury or before they get injured, make sure that they're at a place where they can perform at their best, have, uh, have resilience and be good day after day. Cool. Yeah. My, uh, my background is similar. I was always just really into sports growing up as a kid. I grew up in, in Winnipeg, Canada, so there's not much to do other than play hockey for about 10 months of the year. Sure. So, um, it was a lot of that. Summer times were like play, I played soccer growing up as a kid, baseball as well. I played competitive racquetball. Um, all fun. Took, took martial arts for a few years. That was all in my hometown of Winnipeg, Canada. So I always grew up being really, really athletic, but grew up in small town Canada. And there was largely no awareness around anything other than what, what you would call standard American diet. So even though I was physically active, I didn't have the body composition of someone who was very physically active. And right. that really became something that was an area of challenge for me getting later on in life, just not seeing the results, even though I'm putting putting the effort in. And, and then you go start looking in other uh, opening some other doors around, okay, so what's all this food stuff about? And what other things can I do that are going to help me? And, and that's how I became just this data-driven healthcare company and, and all coming from my own personal interests and my own athletic endeavors, much like you, never good enough to be competitive. But I will take you out on the tennis court if we're ever in the, in the same city. I, I just moved to Scottsdale, Arizona about a year ago. My dad lives here and he, he left Canada 20 years ago. So he's been playing in these men's tennis leagues here in Scottsdale for the whole time he's been here. So 
I moved here a year ago. This is a bit off topic, but anyhow, he uh, he's like, Dave, I signed you up for the men's leagues. I'm like, man, come on, dad. I got so much <laughs> on the go with this business. Why'd you do that? You know what That's I mean? That's all the more reason to do it. All pissed off. You know how it is, right? Up in yeah. my head. And then sure enough, I get out there the first time. I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I got my can, butt can handed to me. Him? That's the real question. Can you be uh, we're, we're pretty evenly matched, but I went out and, you know, on a, on a Tuesday night, you're going out and just putting your phone away for 90 minutes and you're on a, yeah. you're on a league. So you're playing somebody new every week yeah. and you're in a competitive sport, outdoors, physically active. And man, it's like freaking therapy for me. So, uh, and you can do it year round in Scottsdale. Yeah. So I've been playing for about nine months and, uh, you know, I'm at about a, a three Oh three, five level, uh, nice. starting to take some lessons, starting to get more serious about it. I don't like losing. So, yeah, uh, I've been uh, practicing a lot more. So, um, who knows? Maybe we'll have a chance to uh, have a friendly match someday. Let's do it. I'd love it. So uh, let, let's go up to the top levels at the elite levels. And yeah. Tour de France athlete, whatever the case might be. And uh, there, are, there are physiological markers that, that you are probably keeping an eye on. I know, I know yeah. what markers I'd want to look at, but I, I'd like to hear from you to say, okay, I'm, I'm working with an athlete. They're going into the, the pinnacle event of, of their season, for example. Yeah. Um, or even in the off season, they're, they're working on certain things. Like what are the markers that you are really wanting to look at from, for, for someone at that level? So if you're talking about an endurance athlete, it's going to look a little different than maybe a power athlete. Um, pick endurance for now. Yeah. Broad strokes. Um, there's going to be physiologic markers that we may do in like a, like a, a sports laboratory, you know, where, so we may look at VO2 max, although that's not one that I follow really closely because it, there's not a lot actionable about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gives you, you want to know rough estimates on VO2 max on your athletes, but you're not going to program anything based on that. Got you. So it's something we'll look at, but then lactate metabolism is uh, something that's really useful. So doing a lactate test is, you know, if you're on a treadmill, it would get faster and faster and faster. and every three to five minutes, depending on how the test is set up traditionally, your lactate levels would be tested. And that's using what basically looks like a glucometer, only it's not t- testing glucose, it's looking the at lactate stick. concentration. Yeah. And so doing variations on that, we could go deep into what those variations are, but doing variations on a ramp test like that and seeing, taking a look under the, the hood, so to speak, at the athlete's engine um, can be really helpful to see how they're responding to training and how they're set up to kind of go forward. Um, then we look so, at... How is that measured, Kevin? Uh, so lactate metabolism, is, is, is that a... So can you walk me through what a typical test would be? An athlete comes in, they're on a, they're on a treadmill or some other device and you're measuring periodically. Is, is there some average number you're looking at uh, in addition to the point in time metrics? We haven't talked about this one a lot on the show, yeah. so maybe we can unpack it a bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So traditionally, I'll walk you through kind of what the traditional way of evaluating this is and then some new thoughts on how, how people are digging into it a little differently. So traditionally, what would happen is like if I took you, Dave, and we went to a lab and put you on a treadmill, we would set the incline. I would set it to be, say, 1% yep. and just leave it at that, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not raising you up. We're just putting you at one, a fairly flat level. And then raising the pace because that's really what we're interested in in an athlete is how fast can you run, right? Not how how much can you go uphill. Like you can get the same physiological response by adjusting 
the the inclination of the treadmill, but it's not usable when you extrapolate to a real world scenario. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned that only because you'll see tests where it gets steeper and steeper, and that's not really what we're doing here. So standard inclination, and then we get faster and faster. Every three to five minutes, you'll go up a step in terms of speed. So we may start you out at a pretty easy pace, like where you're just barely above walking, like a really slow jog. Okay. We've got a heart rate strap on you, may or may not have a VO2 mask on you. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of that, say three minute stage, when lactate has kind of uh, uh, equilibrated for that effort. So your body's effort. We measure what that lactate level is little finger stick. You can actually take it off the earlobe as well. We get a number, we crank it up. So we may take you from a easy jog to a slightly harder jog, three more minutes, look at your heart rate, your lactate, crank it up. And we just keep going until we reach the point where you're, you've basically failed. You grab on the side of the treadmill, straddle it and you say, I can't go anymore. You know, you're huffing and puffing and feel like you're going to throw up. And so then what we have is a representation of multiple efforts you know, they got harder and harder and harder, this ramp scenario. And we know your body's response physiologically to each of those scenarios. So we can trace that lactate curve and see where, where you were kind of steady state and where you start to accumulate. So if we back up and say, okay, well, what, what is lactate? What are we measuring? Lactate is a, a kind of the exhaust from your metabolic engine. It's the, gotcha. the waste product, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little more nuanced than that because it can also be used as a fuel and there's some other sides to it. Sure. But if we, if we yeah. kind of just step back and say, okay, let's, let's simplify this. We're looking at how much kind of the cost, the physiologic cost of that effort. So for the first stage, the second stage, the third stage, they're getting harder, but your lactate probably isn't changing. It's probably staying right about 0.5, 0.8 millimolar um, per liter. So the idea there is, yes, you're getting harder, but your body's compensating just fine. It's, it's still an easy effort. Still in range, 0.5, 0.8 in range, all good. Exactly. Okay. But there comes a point where all of a sudden you've been you know, 0.8, 0.8, 0.8, oop, you're 1.5. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you're 3.2 and then mm-hmm. you're 8. Like it, it starts to just really accumulate. And that is the point at which you've gone from a almost purely aerobic contribution for the energy transition to anaerobic and then primarily anaerobic or glycolytic, you know, using glycogen versus using fat. So we can see with an athlete in that scenario where that point falls, where that break in the curve is, is very indicative of their current fitness. Gotcha. From that, we can, we can prescribe training to get toward a certain goal. Um, With non-athletes though, we can use that same data and see how, metabolically efficient they are. So at a very easy effort, you should be very low on the lactate. You're not burning much glycogen or Mm -hmm. or carbohydrate. You're burning primarily uh, fat. So it's aerobic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When you have aerobic metabolism, you don't produce much lactate. So it stays low. But if we put somebody in that scenario and have them maybe briskly walking, should be an easy effort. And we see that they're lactate is already creeping up around two, then we know that that person has some metabolic issues, so to speak, that we need to address. They're not metabolically healthy. That may just be pure fitness. That may be an issue with insulin resistance. 
insulin resistance, you know, all sorts of things can come into play. Gotcha. Um, so it's a diagnostic is in some respects as well. Yes. With, gotcha. with, with an athlete, it should, you know, it can be diagnostic, but in a different way, but with kind of the more general population person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of using it diagnostically and using it as a tool to prescribe appropriate exercise. So what you see a lot of times is people who they can't lose weight, they can't lose weight, they're working out, they don't, they're eating well, they don't know what's going on. And I'll sit down and talk with these folks. And a lot of times their, their exercise regimen is high intensity, high intensity, high intensity, right? Which is great. I've got no problem with high intensity, except that that's very glycolytic. It's, it's not where you're going to burn a high amount of fat from a, in terms of contribution for the effort. And if we look and see that they're you know, metabolically inefficient and we actually dial them back on the exercise and say, hey, I, it's great that you're doing CrossFit five times a week. You know, I've got no problem with that. But if the goal is to lose some fat, we got to build in an endurance program here. We yeah. got to drop the intensity way down. You know, it, may be, it may be brisk walks, it may be jogs, it may be hikes, stuff that people don't consider to be that hard for exercise. Probably stuff the junkies don't want to do. They're like, I want the max, man. This is boring. Yeah. But if you've got that data, that lactate data, say this is why you need to do This is why that makes sense. Yeah. And get them to buy in for three months and come back and retest and they can see the improvement there. I love it. Starting to see some body composition improvement and all sorts of stuff. Then you're off and running. So that's an area where you'd you'd want to have some body composition data alongside it to show people progress changes. Uh, you may also want to have some information on their blood glucose levels if Absolutely. there's issues going on there. And then maybe also some, some laboratory testing as well, especially for lay people, fasting insulin, that type of stuff. So a yeah. uh, question on the lactate test, is it, a, is it a meter, like a blood sugar meter? I've never it seen is. one before. Oh, It cool. looks just like, I mean, if I just, I often have one sitting around. I don't have one here at the moment. If I held it up, you would think it was a a blood sugar meter. Oh man, you just gave me a new nerd metric. Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I need one. It's, um, yeah. I mean, you, you don't need a prescription or anything to get it. You cool. hop online, order one, order And it's in millimoles, much like blood ketones and stuff like yep. that. So uh, that, that's a really good one. One question before we leave the, the conversation on yeah. uh, lactate. You know, I read this, uh, the FASTER study, which yeah. really looked at like, okay, when you have an athlete who's been fat adapted over four to six weeks, and you, you put them at these, these high, high loads and you ratchet up their training. It was, it was actually showing that the fat adapted athlete was burning significantly more energy from fat reserves than mm-hmm. the non fat adapted athlete. So, uh, in your, in your world, how, how are you pushing people to fat adaptation as, as part of their ramp up to an event or do you still work more? with individuals who are doing uh, other types of fueling that would be more carbohydrate based, for example? Sure. I think it depends on the athlete, the sport and the individual athlete's metabolism. Mm -hmm. So at the, at the pinnacle of performance, the vast majority of the athletes are what you would call fat adapted. Like if you, if you looked at, and and maybe they haven't done any type of specific programming to get them there, but when you're training 20, 30, so this happens naturally. 40 hours a week yeah. at an endurance level, yeah. you're going to be fat you're adapted. You're always burning off your glycogen and going into the fat stores no matter what. Yeah. I got yeah. you. So it's just kind of a byproduct of being at that level. 
It is. Other it than is. some deliberate, like, okay, we're going to put you into ketosis and keep you there for four weeks. It's like, they're pretty yeah. much already metabolically flexible. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, these are, gotcha. the, these are the best of the best. Now, yeah. there are occasions where when we do testing, we see, well, there's probably a little bit to gain in this regard. And we may, we make you know, some tweaks with regard to diet. We may throw in some fasted training. We may throw in some, some aspects of what you would typically think of as fat adaptation strategies, but with a little bit of a different end objective. Because if you go too far with, with these athletes that are, again, putting in you know, maybe 30 hours a week on the bike or in a combination bike, run, swim, you can cause hormonal problems. You can Totally, man. I've made every mistake in the book doing that. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's a fine line there. There is. Yep. Cool. And then you can also look at in season and out of season. So, yeah. you know, when, it, when an athlete's not in a competitive season, you can play around more with that. Yep. Um, but the, the idea is, in my opinion, is not to be necessarily focused on fat ad- adaptation. And it's also not to be overly glycolytic. It's to be able to be, you know, what they call metabolically flexible. Like when you need to use the aerobic fuel source, you're able to do that very efficiently. And when you need to dip into that glycolytic fuel source, you're able to do that very efficiently. And you can kind of rise to the challenge, whatever that may be. You know, in my own personal health, Kevin, it's taken me um, years, quite honestly, to get to the point where I now can effortlessly do what you described. But when yeah. I first started working on it, it was really hard. Like as soon as I would eat anything that had a source of processed carbs or sugar, it was extremely difficult for me to get back to the point I was at before. It could take a week or two just to like, okay, wean myself back off and and get there. And I've been working on metabolic flexibility now for four years. And now I don't really have to think about it anymore. But, you know, the average person would have a hard time pushing through a lot of that stuff and pushing through that process. That's basically what it is. But it's true. And and you bring up a really good point. This is not, you don't, it's not something you just achieve. It's kind of a, a journey, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, we, we learn that over and over and over in health and fitness. You know, diet is not something you achieve. It's your diet is, is your journey through, mm-hmm. through your food day to day. And being fit is not something you just achieve. It's something that you move toward. And, and I think we lose sight of that in, you know, talking about things like fat adaptation and ketosis and all that. Like that is not the end goal it may be a tool to get us toward an end goal where we're more flexible, where we're, we're fitter, we're more resilient, uh, have a higher, higher level of vitality. And you know, all of this, there's no metric where you reach it and you throw up your hands, but Oh, great. I'm done. I got it. You know, it's like you said, it's getting more and more flexible, which to me, what you just described is like a metabolic resilience. It's getting to the point where your body's in a position to handle whatever's thrown at it. And that's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen in a couple months even. And that, whether you're talking about weight loss or metabolic flexibility or any, any fitness metric, people get frustrated with that. But you know what? There's no shortcut. Like there's, you have to look at the small uh, achievements along the way and just know that you're on the right path. And, you know, having the guidance of a tool like heads up to be able to to, you know, kind of nudge you and keep you on that path and make sure you're going the right way is really important. Um, but there's not the one shortcut that's going to get you there super fast. You know, even in my day-to-day life, it's all about resilience for me. 
And yeah. I noticed that when I'm starting to feel overwhelmed or stressed or anything like that, I just realized that I haven't been managing my own resilience properly. And so that's where I hold myself accountable by using measurement. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I know that when I meditate 20 minutes before bed and 20 minutes in the morning, and I'm checking my HRV with um, Elite HRV and my blood pressure in the morning, I know where those numbers are, are supposed to be when I'm properly managing my resilience. And that means like going to bed at the right time. Yeah. And it means just self-regulating. And I have a, we talked about what is, what is the definition of a high performer? It doesn't matter. It's just like, how do you bring your resilience to your day? So those numbers keep me accountable. And yeah. it's, like I said, it's taken me years to plow through that stuff. But um, let's come back to that. I think I'd, I'd really like to set up, continue setting our baseline for like your, your really elite level metrics. You talked about lactate metabolism, and that obviously sounds like something you'll, you'll be retesting as you're, yes. you're calibrating training. And then what are some of the other ones you're looking at? Real quickly, because I said I would mention it, some new thoughts on yes, lactate. Yep. Um, so what I described was a very consistent ramp where it just gets harder and harder and harder to fail. Yep. There are some scientists and doctors now who are doing tests where they'll take an athlete up to a, a given effort, hold them there, measure, and then see how high the lactate goes, but then stop them and see how quickly it clears. And then you do it again at a different level, see how high it goes, and then how quickly it clears. So you're, so you're looking at the other side of that coin, which is the body's ability to kind of shuttle. Recovery, yeah. Recover. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so there's some new test protocols that uh, that I find very interesting and and very useful in measuring these things that broaden our view of what's going on metabolically. Gotcha. Um, so I just throw that out there to say, you know, there are if you're someone who wants to dig into this, there's some new thoughts there, and they're they're well worth kind of digging into and finding someone who, who does that kind of testing. Well, what's coming up for me when you say that? Kevin is is when you're looking at metabolic health and there's the craft insulin test and and that was developed because okay yeah fasting glucose looks great and actually uh, maybe even fasting insulin looks great but but then you give someone a, a meal and or you subject them to a metabolic load and it's like whoa there's diabetes there and it's right. it's undiagnosed and it's like you said you've got to look at the back half of the curve sometimes because. Yeah. Those, those initial numbers may indicate everything looks good. So I guess if you're an athlete, it's like, hey, yeah, beautiful ramp up. You know, you're good to go. But then you look at what happens on the backside and it's like, actually, it took a lot longer for you to return to baseline. You know, just like your blood sugar should come back to baseline yeah, after exactly. a certain amount of time. And that may also indicate a possible um, intervention or, or treatment. Totally, because you'd want to change your, your training protocol to account for that. If... I mean, we all know from watching, you know, whether you're watching soccer or cycling or basketball, it's rarely just a steady effort through the event, right? Very rarely. There may be some ultra events, Ironman, some things where there's more of a steady effort, but primarily sports is a series of surges and recoveries. Yep. And so if you can surge well, but you can't recover, then you can't surge well the next time. Yep. And so eventually or ultimately you're going to, you're going to lose the, the competition. And so that's where it helps kind of look at that other component to what's going on. All right. That's a really good primer 
on lactate metabolism. It's actually a metric that we don't currently have in, in Heads Up, and that might be something we're going to want to look at adding just for people who want to measure it themselves, or maybe they've had a test done at one point or another at a, at a sports yeah. facility, and they want baseline data in their profile. So um, I'd like to reach An out to you. An interesting way to put yeah. it in there, I think, would be if you're looking more from the, from the metabolic health standpoint and less so at kind of training data, would be to look at either pace, pace on a treadmill or load on a bike, which would be watts, where, where an athlete has a, we look for a sub 2.0 concentration. So we kind of, we kind of pick uh, 1.8 millimoles per liter mm-hmm. as a good level to shoot for. And that's based on, that's not based on my work or my, my best guess. It's based on some, some work out of the University of Colorado and a, and a doctor there. But so if you looked at, if you had a metric that was pace at 1.8 millimoles, and then you saw that basically that pace is getting faster and faster, then you know that for a given metabolic cost, you're able to do more and more. So if you were going, I don't know, you were going at a eight minute mile pace and on the treadmill at 1.8 millimolar, and then you come back in and you're doing a you know, 715 mile, that'd be a huge gain for no more metabolic cost. It's still just costing you, you 1.8 millimoles of lactate. Yep. Um, so it's a good way to kind of look at both fitness and, and metabolic health, so to speak. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to think of some ways we could incorporate that metric. Yeah. It's um, very relevant, something we don't have in there. And it makes so, it a single point that way as opposed to trying to fit a graph in there and finding a break point and all that. Cool. Uh, you, you brought up something else and I pinged you on this over email. Let's just touch on this briefly, and then I really want to get back to your key metrics. But there's a book I'm reading about mouth breathing versus nose breathing yeah. and how that in- increases, for example, uh, the level of, I guess, it's nitric oxide that you can bring in when you're, when you're breathing through the nose. And so this book is looking at something called a bolt score, which just basically looks at like when you're, when you're holding your breath, how long can you hold for? And then actually yeah. doing breath holds as a way essentially to get the benefits of altitude training. But for people like me who are living in Scottsdale, you know, I used yeah. to live up in Truckee at 7,000 feet. So yeah. it was easy to train that way. But any comments on like using strategies to simulate like altitude adaptation or training? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I won't pretend to be an expert in this, in the field of breath work, but from, from what I've looked at and understand you know, there, there are devices that you can use that will actually decrease the partial, partial pressure of oxygen. So it, it simulates altitude. And yep. then there are, there are devices or techniques you can do that just make breathing Breath holds more difficult. Like yeah. yeah. Or, or limited, restricted. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of, these techniques fall into that latter category. And what they tend to do in, in my experience with athletes is like, if, if we give someone a workout to do, and have them do it primarily while nose breathing, it puts that governor on them so that, you know, in that scenario, we're typically prescribing a workout that is supposed to be almost entirely aerobic, going back to lactate kind of below that, you know, two or 1.8 millimolar level. And if you're requiring yourself to do that workout nose breathing, then it keeps you there almost by default. If you if you try to go harder than that, you have a much higher level of glycolytic input. Yep. And, and then you kind of have to open your mouth and, and, and get rid of that carbon dioxide. Yep. Because really, 
the trigger there for breathing is not the lack of oxygen, it's the buildup of carbon dioxide. Yes. And so you're really limited. You can get plenty of oxygen in through your nose. Mm-hmm. I mean, assuming you're not sick and don't have sinus problems and pathology, whatever. but in, in general, you can get plenty of oxygen in through your nose. It's a matter of how much carbon dioxide or kind of waste product from that metabolism you can get out. Gotcha. And so if you put the regulator on that by clamping the mouth, then it kind of, it's a, a poor man's way of keeping you where you need to be. Um, it, it can be very effective. Fair um, enough. Yeah. I, I started testing it, started kicking the tires on it. Uh, yeah. we've, we've had some requests for like a bolt score in the system. I just, uh, yeah. Anecdotally want to get some thoughts, but I'm more interested in, in Dr. Kevin's, uh, high performer metrics. So, uh, yeah. let's <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I think that one's fascinating. It's something to play around with for sure. And I think, cool. um, for the right athlete, it's going to be a, a really interesting uh, tool to follow. Yep. Great. All right. Keep going. Yeah. So if we, if we take ourselves out of the exercise lab and into the, in the blood laboratory, yep. then, um, you know, I already I, know I your panel. So I, I have a, I have a little exactly. in, in, inkling there's, yeah. So I'm curious to see which of the top ones you'll pick off that panel, but I've already gotten a sneak peek at what labs you, you like to run. Sure. Yeah. And, and the reference ranges I use to look at them. Yes, indeed. Um, so that's one of the things is you, there's so much out there you can order and, and even stuff that is, you know, technically experimental. And I'm a big fan of digging into that and seeing where there's utility and where there's not, but I don't like to lose sight of the fact that a lot of the very basic metrics that are, they've been around for decades. They're not expensive to Tried run. and tested. Yeah. They're, and they're often neglected. So there's low hanging fruit out there that is not sexy, yep. but is really effective. Yeah, and so if I had to pick the top ones that we look at, yeah, it's going to be hemoglobin and hematocrit, yeah. right? So look at oxygen carrying capacity, but also trend those because as someone starts to become catabolic or, or break down, we're going to see those decline. Uh, we can see in those numbers evidence of um, adaptation at altitude to to training plans, to all sorts of stuff. So there's very simple metric. The test probably costs. Three dollars to run, and yep. you've got a lot of data, a lot of history, a lot of evidence behind. It. Except so, if you get it through your doctor, then they're going to bill your insurance company like four thousand dollars for that test. Knows how much it cost? Exactly. It's yeah. yeah it shouldn't. It it takes ninety seconds to run, so there's no reason that you should get your results yeah. in a week, and yeah. it shouldn't cost you more than five dollars to get that test done. Yeah, and even that, you're generously donating to someone's pocket. Totally. Um, All right. Well, those are good ones. Hematocrit, hemoglobin, and, and you're looking at those for, um, you mentioned um, metabolic efficiency and training kind of, adaptation. Yeah, training adaptation. Oxygen. Yeah, are they, are they catabolic? Are they, are they breaking down? And, and you really need to trend those to see. Right? How, much, how much data do you need? Like, uh, how often would you run those to say, okay, I've got a good trend, like uh, every three months? About every three months. In a, okay. In a, and someone who's interested, but not maybe a super elite athlete, every three months is perfectly fine. Um, yeah. And someone who is very like a world-class athlete, endurance athlete, we're probably looking at it every six weeks or so. Cool. Um, outside of the blood counts, we're going to look at things like ferritin, which is yep. a iron storage protein. It's oh, also man. a marker of inflammation. My so, ferritin's always jacked. I have to get like voluntary phlebotomy just to like get that number down. Really? Yeah. Do you have, has anybody looked at familial hemochromatosis or anything? I stuff? haven't run the test to actually determine if that's what it is or not. I just yeah. know that mine's always really high unless I'm giving blood. Yeah. 
Well, the good thing is giving blood is, is beneficial to others and to you for, yeah. for health. So there's, that's a good, uh, good strategy to address it. Okay. So that's, that's a measure of inflammation and uh, iron, iron storage then. Yeah. So a lot of times in endurance athletes, we'll see that that number can dip and they get this, this anemia before they actually have a decrease in red blood cells. So it's not what we would term anemia in anywhere else, but it's anemia of an athlete. Their iron stores are dropping, they're becoming catabolic, and their performance drops because of it. So maintaining a ferritin level that is uh, high enough that you're not symptomatic is important, but then not overshooting. You know, iron can be really dangerous when it's too high. And so making sure that you're kind of in that sweet spot is important. Just supplementing is not the right answer. I mean, supplements are part of the you know, supplements, dietary change, but also seeing, okay, why, why is someone really low? Are they, mm-hmm. do they have a bleed? Are they, they have a slow bleed in their stomach or their colon? Mm-hmm. Um, is it you know, calorie restricting and they're basically underfed and overly catabolic? Find out the underlying source. Don't just throw iron at someone and then make sure they're not too high. So, so we've got hemoglobin, hematocrit, and ferritin kind of yeah. give us a good picture of that hematologic process and yeah catabolic versus anabolic testosterone to cortisol ratios Mm -hmm. Uh, testosterone being an anabolic hormone obviously cortisol being more of a catabolic hormone you can create kind of a uh, a profile of an athlete um, looking at their ratio the absolute number there is you can't really interpret so if you take do it as a one-off and say oh their testosterone to cortisol ratio is x doesn't mean much but if you build that profile again and see where they start to deviate one way or the other, then you can get an idea of, of how they're adapting or maladapting to. So that's an, another number where you're going to want to see, see some historical trend versus yes, just a absolutely. point in time, for example. Yeah. I mean, trending is, is huge because it's, it provides the context. It provides, you know, if something is just markedly pathologic, Yes, one-time measurement is totally agree. But most of what we're dealing with with athletes and also people who are just like you, healthy, but trying to improve their performance on a day-to-day, they're not pathologic. Their numbers are you know, quote-unquote normal. But it's knowing where they're moving and if they're moving that's important. Yep. So that trend is, is crucial. Wow, love it. From a health and metabolic perspective, looking at a fasting glucose, fasting insulin, those are going to be really important triglycerides, you know, kind of building an overall picture metabolically, but also from a dietary standpoint on athletes and patients. I was supposed to limit myself to only five or six. So, well, these are gold. Let me see what else I'll throw <laughs> Thyroid status can be really helpful in very active people. Yep. Again, often not finding frank thyroid illness, although we sometimes do, but more seeing how someone is responding from a hormonal standpoint to whatever stress they're under, which in elite athletes, the, the primary stress is generally their training load, but we have to also account for sleep, uh, travel, uh, interpersonal stresses, all, all the things that the rest of us deal with too. Yep. So looking at you know, hormonal health through the lens of, of thyroid, testosterone, cortisol, those can be really helpful as well. And again, with a trend, because I don't care that an athlete's TSH is you know, 2.3, you know, I care that it's 2.3 compared to their baseline. Where is that? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think those, those are the primary things we can start to get into thing. You know, we, we follow markers of, uh, muscle damage, like creatinine kinase, ALT and AST, which we typically think of as liver enzymes, but are also, uh, uh, markers of acute muscle damage, uh, lactate dehydrogenase as well. So kind of depends on what we're evaluating in an athlete or in a patient in general, but picking some metrics that are pertinent to that person, establishing a trend, yep. hugely helpful. And none of these things are expensive tests. I mean, I don't think we haven't gotten into talking about reverse T3 or, you know, any of the things that can be useful, a little more esoteric, much more expensive. But I look at it as maybe a second or third tier metric when we're really digging into something, not That's just cool. for um, routine monitoring. That's cool. So you've got some metrics in, in the lab. You've, you've mentioned VO2 max, you know, um, moderately useful just to understand where a person's at, but not a lot you can really move or prescribe there. The, um, quickly, at least. Yeah. Lactate metabolism, which, which is a very important one in, in yeah. the sports lab. And then the blood work, we're starting to build a profile here. And then presumably there's some um, athlete-generated data that you're, you're going to want to look at as well. Yeah. So we use pretty common tools like uh, you know, Garmin, mm-hmm. Training Peaks, Strava, mm-hmm. these different tools where athletes can upload their workouts and then quantify uh, you know, acute training loads, chronic training loads, how they're doing with a given workout, which may be kind of an index workout that they do every six weeks and kind of see where they are. So that training data is really important. And then also looking at things like, like sleep and recovery. So most of my patients are on either using either an aura ring or a whoop mm-hmm. um, and kind of pick that tool based on, based on the athlete, based on their tolerances. Yep. Um, but both provide great data with regard to uh, sleep metrics, uh, sleep stages, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, you know, things that let us know day to day if they're recovered, um, which is more the purview of the coach who's, you're following them day to day. I sit kind of a step removed from that. I got you. Not writing the training programs and all. And I may look at trends over a week, you know, as an athlete, have they had three or four bad days of sleep? What's Mm -hmm. going on? Let me contact them. Have they had declining heart rate variability? You talked about the, the coefficients of variance for heart rate variability, which is great. One of the ways I like to look at that is take the three-day average of the heart rate variability and compare that to the rolling 45-day average. So you've got basically this rolling month and a half of where their heart rate variability is, and you want to see where they are subacutely compared to that. So the 45 day is more important to you than like a lifetime baseline, for example? In this scenario, because it's going to change with training load and where they are in the season. Gotcha. Um, I'm know, just thinking about like your portal because we're building that for you. And so we'd, we'd want to have it where you could look at, we, we could build that for you where it's just, because like the current way awesome we calculate the Aura CV is based on the last seven days. Right. We, we don't bench, we, we benchmark it against a lifetime baseline. Yeah. But um, if you wanted, we could do it that way where it's like, okay, let's, let's take the average, let's take the uh, CV over the last three days and benchmark it against the CV over the last 45 days. And we could just have that for you right in the column. Um, I think that'd be awesome. Just I thinking mean, out loud here. I, I think both are useful. Don't get me wrong. I, I think you have to target it to the, 
to the audience. But when you're looking at someone who's training, again, high volumes, and that may be 15 hours a week and also working full-time as an attorney, mm-hmm. or it could be you know, 30, 35 hours a week as a pro athlete, there's so much variation in the periodization of that training that having the, the, the view you know, of a, a CV, seven-day CV versus lifetime is great for a very big picture. But then as we want to get in a little bit tighter to how are they responding to the training load at this moment? Yep. That's where 45 days makes more sense. Yeah. And I'll say, I mean, that's just me 45, quite honestly, I've I've pulled out of thin air, but it seems, I mean, not thin air. There's no research that I'm aware of, but that's kind of a training cycle, a six week training cycle. Yep. So there's rationale there, but it's not hugely evidence-based, but it seems to work well. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to s- take that small step back from just looking at daily CRV because there can be confounding variables in there that impact that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still keep an eye on it, but it helps to smooth the data a little bit to just step back a little bit and see, yep. okay, was, was last night a one-off? It was just a bad day and we just need to alter today and let you recover a little and get back to it? Or are we seeing a trend downward we need to address? You know, sometimes you got to go blow off some steam, Doc, and uh, smack back a few drinks and uh, totally. just, let, just, just let the lion out once in a while. So, you know, that could... And I'm all for it. I mean, you know, I, I, there, there's numerous times where I've called up an athlete and said, hey, it looks like you had a terrible night's sleep. And he's like, oh, let me tell you about last night. It's like, yeah. okay, that's fine. Get it out of the system. You know, that's how it is for me. Like, you know, every once or two, I'm like, all right. Let me get it out of the system, go have some fun, let off some steam and uh, then get back in the fight. Yeah. As long as it's not from, from training too hard or starting to get sick or what, like if you know what caused it and you were fully in charge of it the whole time. Yeah. No problem. Beautiful. Recover and get you back at it. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, this paints a really good picture for us. And, and I think that's, that's amazing. And there's, there's a lot of lay people out there that are getting to this level of sophistication as well. Maybe yeah. not the um, lactate testing, although this might uh, maybe inspire some people to, sure. to get those types of baseline numbers. But people being educated and empowered around getting labs, looking at labs themselves, trending labs themselves, having access to the technology that you described that can provide things like... Um, Sleep cycle, HRV, resting heart rate. You know, there's hat tip to Aura, you know, because uh, they're, they're helping so many people totally. look, at, look at time-restricted eating. And wow, even time-restricted exercise. It's like, wow, when, when, I, when I pull those earlier into the day, my heart rate through the night is much lower. Yeah. That, 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 that was something that was completely a black box to me until I was able to see those and make those corrections. And yeah. And people are out there sharing information online and, and they're dialing stuff in and, and they're, they're really getting educated and engaged with all this. So what, what you describe here for someone at the, at the elite levels really could be a dashboard that anybody could build for themselves. Absolutely. They really and want none to get it my ass. None of it is terribly expensive. Yeah. None of it is, you know, esoteric and, yeah. and, and hard to kind of wrap your head around. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, and, and there are those metrics that get way out there and they, totally. they're yep. fun and they're good to dig into, but mm-hmm. the, the basics are, they're foundational. And mm-hmm. unless you're digging into those, don't, don't worry about dropping off the edge of you know, <laughs> everything is possible. Let's, let's stick to the stuff that is really informative. And in my experience, you, you can answer most questions with, not all of them, but you can answer most questions with, this basic data and attention to the trends, which, you know, heads up provides the ability to do that. 
Well, my mission in life is to make everyone a, data, a health data nerd. Uh, my secret mission, you, you know, whether whether they realize it or not, you know what I mean? As soon as even you get someone developing even a basic awareness, like testing blood sugar, you know, so many people yeah. I work with who have never tracked their health before. And, and I'll, I'll just like, Hey, just, just, just punch all your food into this app for a couple of days and let's look right. at your carbs. And then I'll ship them a uh, glucometer and I'm like, okay, let's, let's get some blood sugar data. You know, as soon as those light bulbs start going off for people, you, you, you fundamentally change that person's life and their reality yeah. and, and, and about health. And, um, totally. that's, that's my secret motive with this, with this app. It's a good one. Yeah. We've been jamming here for about an hour and this has been awesome. Oh, nice. I think we've created a really beautiful picture of a, of a high performer dashboard and also shown people that this, this is accessible to anybody who's performing at the top of their game who wants yeah. to perform at the top of their game, who wants to manage their resiliency, whatever you're doing, doesn't matter. So this is exactly what I was hoping we'd talk about. We're good. Dr. Kevin, and we've got some work to do building a, a dashboard for you so that it'll be easier for you to holistically see all this stuff. I think that's a project we're all really excited about. And and then working with you to start figuring out, okay, what, what types of uh, signals could we automatically detect for you so that you're not, you, you and your staff are not having to log in and, and peck through the data. So starting to put some of those thresholds in there. Um, it's, it's a really, really exciting project. We're, um, we're glad to be working with you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be working with you guys too. I think there's nothing, there's nothing out there that's even close to doing what you guys are doing. Um, and if more, more doctors will get on board, more, more patients for their own sake. Um, yeah. It's only going to provide good stuff. You know, there's, there's, there's admittedly, I'm not sure how many um, people within conventional or within other, other disciplines of health really could look at it as comprehensively as someone like yourself can. But I'm hoping there's, there's more ways to train healthcare professionals on how to use this stuff. You know, a lot of nutrition coaches don't know how to read lab work and we'll stay yeah. as far away from that as possible. Or maybe they don't understand how to how to properly interpret an HRV number. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. But um, well, I think as more patients get savvy and ask for it, yeah, then it's going to be it's going to be just demand. I mean, yeah, it's people will seek out those that are you know maybe don't know how to do it. I get yeah. requests from patients all the time that I, I don't know intimately what they're talking about, but mm -hmm. let's go learn about it, right? Yeah. So I think if you just keep an open mind as a, as a professional and realize you don't have to know everything, yeah. you need to know what you know and be willing to learn more, then this type of stuff becomes just faster. Well, and patients are going to demand it. You know, they're going to start walking oh, yeah. into their health coach's office. They're like, listen, doc, here's my HRV CV and, and here's what's going on. And they're like, your HR what? Right. And, okay. Right. I better go get educated here because people are coming in the door yeah. that know more about this stuff than I do. And it's all relevant health information. So yeah. maybe it'll be and a bottom. If that's the response, yeah. then that's great. If that's yeah. the response, like I want to learn about this, fantastic. But yeah. if the response is, screw that, can't be. Uh, it doesn't matter. Well, we didn't, we didn't learn about it in yeah. training. Yeah. Um, that's when you need to say, turn your back and, and walk out, I think. Well, this is awesome. I hope we'll have another opportunity to jam once we yeah, definitely continue working together. But thanks for your time, Doc. This has been a really, really wonderful and educational episode. So uh, we're grateful. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio. 